So to, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday and the first day of Lent, which is when we're supposed to give up something, right? Let go, you know, the themes. And uh, so I'd like to suggest that we give up self-enhancement. <laughs> That's a noble one. I think that'd be a real noble cause. Now it may take you longer than Lent to figure out what that is, <laughs> but it'd be worthwhile. <laughs> so we're going to continue uh, with the uh, introduction of, uh, in presentation and posture so that we line this uh, Satipatthana Sutta up correctly. Tonight I want to talk about moving the principle through the application. And to do that I'm going to use a theme that I'm afraid some of you are familiar with because I've been, it's been current in my own thinking for the last uh, few weeks, but I usually move beyond themes, so don't think I'm going to stay there forever. And that theme is um, moving from uh, noise, commotion, to stillness. And that continuum from moving to noise to stillness could be seen, could be interpreted as the entire spiritual path. Now, what I want to do is to uh, introduce uh, the principles of Buddhism and how when you can move with those particular the particular way that the Buddha framed the Dharma or if there's a, a way that you feel inclined towards uh, then there are several ways to offspring uh, that fit very comfortably within the way the Buddha framed the teaching. So let me make that a little clearer. Uh, the Buddha said he taught one thing and one thing only, uh, suffering and the end of suffering. And so he framed the whole of the Dharma from suffering to the end of suffering. And so we wonder where selflessness is in that. I mean, I can just stop suffering, right? Well, not so fast, because as we become more sensitive to the areas and self-inflicted suffering that we give our lives, we see that at the base root of the contraction is the self's needs, which creates the pain that it has with the world. And so you're not going to be able to end suffering without understanding the nature of self. So within his frame of reference, from suffering to the end of suffering, he could have framed it from self to selflessness, you see? Well, there are lots of ways to frame that. And some of them draw our heart towards those, that, those continuums that other doesn't feel quite right for us. Some of you might not feel quite settled with suffering to the end of suffering. It sounds like you have to go through a torture chamber and or, you know, it doesn't, for some people that doesn't work real well. But there are lots of other ways to do it. And, I like to present a variety of different ways, continuums, that still fit within the same basic teaching of the Buddha. And you could say from being unconscious to being conscious. Now you say, well, where is selflessness in that? Well, the very fact that you're not aware of what yourself is confirms that you're unconscious to it. And so part of the continuum of going from unconscious to conscious means that you would have to make yourself conscious, make what you are conscious. Or, last year we talked about the paramis, and each of those paramis are themselves continuums that cover the whole spiritual path. For instance, we could talk about generosity, going from selfishness to generosity. And you say, well, where does the selflessness or the suffering relate to that? Well, it's very simple that when you're selfish, you're very contracted. You're in a lot of pain, although you may not recognize it because you project that pain outward onto the world, kind of like a Scrooge mentality. He didn't realize he was suffering until he realized that he was the inflictor of his own pain. And so, as you move from selfishness to generosity, generosity in its pristine form is selfless. It's a full embrace of the world. It's, no, it's not putting 
into any boundaries or partitions between oneself and life. That's full embrace of heart. Heart and life are one and the same and can be said to be fully generous. So we talked about that last year as to how to use those continuums if they, if they resonate with us. And some, some resonate very deeply with us. Generosity is one that I think many of us connect with. And just to, to move it a little further, you could say another parami from impatience to patience. Most of us start out very impatient where time is a factor in our life and we are always in uh, some kind of stress or pressure around the time element in our life and we don't have time to be with anyone because we're being pressured by the future of what we need to do in relationship to what we are doing. And so that sense of self is very much a part of an impatient personality or character. And as we move it through the continuum, we come to patience. And patience is a complete release from time in which time is not the uh, foundation or the dimension in which we operate, essentially. You operate uh, not from a sense of a future and a past, but from an ever-present now. And so that the spiritual journey could be seen as that. So tonight, I'm going to talk about from noise to stillness. And just to give you a context of how that fits within what the Buddha is talking about in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. Well, you don't have to look too far. And that's the reason I like this particular continuum. When you sit down and watch your mind, it's constant noise. How enjoyable is that? You know, and you know that even though you may not be aware of it while you're not sitting, that it's continuing to blabber. It's continuing on ceaselessly, ceaselessly. And that we're just, our life is just being pulled into that frame of noise almost continuously, and that sets us up to project enormous noise and drama upon the world and a continuous, unrelenting backlash of sound from the world onto us. And you can begin to see that the noisier you make yourself, the more full of argument you are, the full of your own desires and alternatives, and the more you will suffer in relationship to those ideas. And the quieter you are, the less of a sense of self there is because the self is built from that noise and resistance and therefore the more less uh, suffering you will have. So I'm going to take this theme of noise and stillness and I'm going to move it right on through, give you some sense of where it's come from and to look at the applications of how to work with our Dharma practice using that continuum as the principle by which we practice, you see? And you can do this with any of your continuums from suffering to not suffering or any of the ones I just mentioned. So what I'm, the point of what I am doing is to show you that unless your applications are completely aligned with the principles from which you're operating, your dharma, then they will uh, skew the result. You won't be headed in the direction you think you are. And it requires a sophistication of dharma and a maturity of dharma to realize when we are cross-graining, when we are moving cross-grain to our central purpose and theme of dharma. So, I, I, that's the point of the talk tonight, is to, just to give you some sense of how each of us practice and whether we're practicing in alignment with the deepest heart yearning uh, within us. Now let's just look uh, at this sense of, of noise. Uh, 
But just before I do, I, I want to bring out one point in, in that, is that uh, once we understand what noise is, and that the absence or the stillness that surrounds all things is really where the Dharma is moving to, we have to, it's not good enough just to kind of get a sense of that. You have to really understand how the noise is creating a lot of pain for you. You have to begin to see the environment of noise that we live with and how contracted we are around it all the time. And this argument, this constant need to resist and to um, assert our own opinions upon things really has a backlash effect of tension and stress in our life that is insurmountable as long as we try to talk our way out of it. And so we have to see that directly. You have to get a sense of the landscape of noise in order for this continuum to work. And then your heart will yearn for it, the alternative. It will yearn for the stillness of peace and quietude. It will yearn for that. And then an intention will form that is in conjunction and in direction of that continuum. But just to take a continuum on, I think this is a good one, and not to understand the landscape of where this continuum is within you and to develop an intention that really wants to surmount the obstacle and move to the solution is it just won't work without that and that's called in Buddhism wise view and wise intention those are the first two links of the Eightfold Path so let's look let's get a sense of this landscape of noise within us. Let's see where it has come from. Let's see what we can do about it in relationship to the applications of our practice. Okay? So, in an evolutionary sense, I think this is really interesting because two or three million years ago we uh, descended from treetops. We diverted from our monkey heritage or common heritage with apes or what I don't know. But anyway, we decided to land on the ground and make that our environment, make it work for us. And we got out there on the prairies or the grasslands or wherever we were, probably in the Serengeti Plains. And uh, we were pretty undefended. We didn't have a lot going for us. We weren't very strong. We weren't going to beat up any we were going to be able to fight our way out of an animal attack. And we weren't very fast. Almost every animal was faster than we were. So we were going to run, be able to run sufficiently fast enough to escape an animal attack. And so we had to develop something in us, a mechanism, which could be our solution, our survival mechanism. And we did. And that mechanism was that we developed the ability to think abstractly. Now, what that did for us was it gave us cunning. So when we looked at a stick, it was not a stick. It was a weapon. And so we could think an alternative use for the instruments and objects at hand and then use those for our defense. Now remember this, because this, this line goes through the entire talk. We did this for our security. We started talking to ourselves for reasons that were important. We had to protect ourselves. And so when I set out on my journey, I need something that's going to keep me from being a person of prey out on, in the fields. And so I would take whatever I needed with me, usually other people with other weapons, and we would, as a group, be able to defend ourselves as well as provide meat for the community. So all well and good, except what happens when we have an abstract, uh, when we start seeing abstractly. So survival is extraordinarily important. 
And abstract, being able to see abstractly is this wonderful, I think it's uniquely uh, our species. Some species have a rudimentary ability to see abstractly, perhaps very rudimentary tools, but we have developed it far and away more than most species. And we have been able to defend ourselves as well as build a rather elaborate life. I mean, look around. All of this is from abstract ideas. Take us all the buildings and constructions and everything we have generated uh, that has uh, been made by our hands has come because we have this resource tool that we have honed rather skillfully over the millennium. But there is a problem. When you see abstractly, what you're really doing is looking at alternatives for what objects are, right? And realities. So you project a certain reality and then you see yourself being able to defend yourself with some weapon that you also see abstractly. So then you build that reality to come to bear with your weapon out into the fields. And so the, what takes over at this point is alternatives to the situations that are at hand. You start thinking in terms of alternatives. That's what abstract reasoning gives us. That's also the definition of suffering. So the fact that it was the key component evolutionarily that allowed us to survive as a species is also the same reason that we are on a spiritual path and trying to end the suffering that we initiated to be safe so many million years ago. Now, for those of you who don't recognize that seeing an alternative reality is at the source of our pain, let me just provide a very simple example. Whatever the source of pain may be for you, let us say the room is too hot. The reason that we are in reaction, in resistance to the fact that the room is too hot is that we could believe that we could alter that reality and make it cooler. And the fact that it isn't cool in this moment doesn't stop the mind from conjuring up the reality that it could be. And the distance between the fact that it could be something and the fact of where it is, is the resistance and suffering that we give our life and tone into our life. It's always that fact. It's always the knee pain that shouldn't be there or the aging that shouldn't be happening or the motorcycle that should not be going by. And because we've had millions of years to hone this skill, it is instantly fast and instantly recognizable as a thought pattern, a noisy pattern within our mind that's giving us a reality. And we have, are so used to now living within the words of the mind that the alternative reality that we know could be here if we just had the right tools to fix it takes precedent over the reality that really is here and which we have lost connection with because we are now word-based in our, in our language. Do you see? So now you also see that the noise level and suffering are really one and the same thing. And you go, wait a minute here, whoa. What am I supposed to do with this? This is automatic. This is like, you know, I don't have any, this is, and it's amazing how fast it is. It's just, it's just lightning quick. In fact, as I've mentioned before in other talks, the neurological pathway of perception is the same neurological pathway as recognition. And so what you re see, you also recognize. You also put a word to. You also have a history with, a memory relationship with. And you could go either way. You could go with a pure perception or you could go with a memory. Well, guess what? We go with a memory. 
Why do we go with the memory? Because we have centuries upon centuries of using the memory for our means of safety and security. And so that has received the majority of our energy. But now we're safe, right? But the history of our encultured safety is very small compared to the length of time we spent naked running around on the plains of Africa somewhere. So we haven't caught up genetically, we haven't caught up to the fact that we don't have to think this way anymore. And that's where we need a new paradigm, a shift of the way we actually are in order to come into a new, the new reality of our times. We can't keep thinking like beasts of prey. And we do. And it's this automatic tendency to think ourselves and the alternative reality that that would allow. Now, another important component of an abstract world of, in which we have invested in abstract ideas is that you can't have an abstract idea without a subjective experience. See, once you have possibilities, then there is a decision about which possibility, which alternative you're going to go with. That sense of choice, that sense of gives, there is a, there is a subjective point in who is making the decisions upon the alternatives that are at hand. And that subjective experience then becomes central to the decision-making of which alternatives we select. It's a little bit like trying to have a mirror, abstract ideas, without the reflection, subjective experience. You can't have a mirror without a reflection, neither can you have an abstract idea without a subjective experience. It just doesn't, that can't be. Now this subjective experience is fine, except now we have coalesced around the subjective experience as the person who needs to be safe by making alternative decisions about reality. That person wasn't there before. It was formed by our ability to language other possibilities to reality. And we have now enamored that sense since safety isn't our main question anymore, self-embellishment becomes where this subjective experience finds its control and use. So what was used to be just staying alive in a rudimentary sense of self and just being able to stay alive has now become an embellished sense of me, which is taking more and more of a throned position within our life and it becomes what and how we think, what we think about. We're no longer thinking about how to keep the lion out from our doorstep. We're thinking about how to enhance ourselves in comparison to our neighbor. And so now the subjective experience, which was a byproduct of our safety, has become the issue of our safety. Isn't that interesting? My God, this is out of control. This is completely out of control. And yet it, it's so, it, it seems so compelling, so true, so necessary in our life. Now, a funny thing is that once we have learned to talk ourselves into place, now we have to keep it going. Because as soon as we're quiet, we both lose the ability to have abstract ideas and we have lost the subjective experience. And this feels very scary because now this, the sense of protection of the 
subjective experience, the sense of me, has become the main reason that we are jabbering. We are creating. And the sense of me has now taken on new proportionality. It says, I'm better than you. I start looking at how good I am as a comparison to you. Something Now it's gone completely counter to its original reflective position. It has now taken on a propriety and a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning and everything has then now evolving around the central key issue of myself. Don't you see that? The whole world, the whole world revolves around each one of us, doesn't it? All senses come in right to me. I am the absolute center of the universe. Aren't you? We all are. It's as if, it's as if somehow we can listen to others, but the real point of our life is this center. And that everything else is kind of a, if I have time for it, then I will make time. But otherwise, this monarch is the front and center purpose and point of all of our activity. And in order to keep that monarch throned, I have to keep the noise level at a certain pitch. And because we have become more and more embellished in our self-importance, we have to, that pitch has gone up. Extreme to a new high decibels. And some of us keep a kind of drama in our life to keep the pitch level at a certain noise. And we just invoke and keep and maintain drama. And we think it's them doing it to us or events. Or, and it's always, oh, you can't believe how awful my life is. And that pitch level keeps me forefront in my own processes. Now, at this point, you should begin to feel a little weary. <laughs> and hopefully, an intention should be arising in you that says, oh, you know, I, I need to understand this. I can't keep living. I can't keep living at the expense of drama. I can't keep forcing sound waves through this system to reaffirm my own place in the world. And yet, when we sit down in order to be quiet, what do we hear but just the continued reverberation of our own thinking? And what we do, this is a key point, what we do in relationship to that noise is essential if we are trying to seek the end of our suffering or if we're trying to exploit the noise towards more self-enhancement. You see? Genetically, you're pulled in one direction. And believe me, it has many more years of conditioning behind it than the very few years you have towards coming into simplicity and stillness. And so the knee-jerk response for all of us when we sit down, is to add more noise to what it is that's in, 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 uh, in occurring in, in our minds and bodies. And so we sit down and our meditation, in a misapplication of our meditation, is that we get, we can either go along with the noise and just add our own noise to it by thinking about settling our lives, trying to take them into, you know, scoping it out. And into, well, today I have a meeting and boy, I've got to be prepared for that meeting and this is what I'm going to do. To be. You can do it that way. You can use your meditation towards increasing the noise level or at least encouraging the continuation of your noise level, which will feed the dynamics of your genetic disposition Or we can use that uh, when experiences arise to opinionate about the experiences 
which again cultivates and continues the, uh, the decibel, inward decibel level of our life through our reactions to what it is that are going on or our opinions about what are going on or this constant monologuing or dialoguing that's occurring while we're sitting. And all of that will keep ourselves very firmly in place in the noise. And that's the fact. Or we can be quiet. And quiet is not our conditioned response. That has to come from something else. And that is where we have to bring ourselves absolutely current in the moment. Because the noise, remember, the noise develops a story about every object. The noise has a whole history with every object there is. And so everywhere we look, everything we see, we have a history and association with it. And that's also true with everything that's in us. All the emotions, all of our thinking, our bodies, our minds, who we are, everything is filled and covered with an opinionation an idea about. And so each object holds its own story, as well as the subject, me. It has a huge story, too. And the storyteller of all of these different objects and subjects is thriving by opinionating about all the things that are occurring while I sit. Now, the stories are going to continue to come because we've invested so much in that even when our intention is to be quiet, it doesn't silence the mind. The mind continues to jabber, continues to think. It continues to bring forth the stories and objects of, of, our, of our years, of our images. So what is it then that can be still with that? Because I can't. My life, the sense of me, my life, depends upon that noise. I can't shut myself up. Why would I want to shut myself up anyway? I kind of like thinking. I like it better than being on the breath. I can go anywhere with my thought. I can, I can uh, you know, if I don't want to be here in the room, well, I, just a simple man, just imagination, I'm out of here. Why? That's like the ultimate power, isn't it? Why would I want to give that up? That's the most important power I own. Yeah. It is. It's, I can be God because I can do anything in here. But you know what? It's like a, the, a baby in a bubble. You know, like a bubble boy or whatever those people that are put in for <coughs> immune deficiencies, immunological deficiencies are placed in a completely sanitary environment and they have this during this bubble that's what it's like to live only with thinking is that you're in a bubble you can't ever touch anything because there's a plastic fabric between you and everything the plastic fabric is the thought we have about everything and so you never really touch the world living in that bubble you touch your thought about the world but that's the bubble So what do we do, you see? We're in, a, we're in a fix. We're in a fix. It's not clear. Everything I try to do really stimulates more thought and more reactivity. Every time I assert my opinion about something, it just seems to get noisier in there. I don't know what to do. And believe me, each of us have to go through every strategy that we can think of before we'll come to the one strategy that works. But 
The reason I'm giving this talk is to show you that you can cut through very quickly all of those strategies and come very directly and very immediately to the end of that. As long as you've got a clear and concise continuum that you're working on. Oh, I'm working from noise to quiet. Then anything I do, anything the sense of me does, because I've looked at this. I've looked at the sense of noise in myself. I've looked at where it comes from. I've looked at what stimulates the noise. I've looked at all the alternatives I give reality which keep me in pain. I've done a complete and thorough investigation and inquiry into the noise level of myself. And I see that the noise level maintains itself despite my desires to be quiet. And I've done that, my research, but it's not research in terms of analysis, it's research in terms of actual experiencing the noise directly. And from that research, from that meditation investigation, there wells up in me an intentionality to put an end to all of this frantic movement that is creating ever-increasing suffering. Subtle, but as our ability to discern the subtlety of suffering increases, you see where we're still suffering. And this is an area that will, it's like the sand in an oyster. It just keeps annoying enough until a pearl is formed, a pearl of wisdom. Yeah, I just don't want to go there because when I start getting quiet, I lose the very precious center that the whole world has been, has been revolving around. And I, that's scary to me. I don't, it's as if I were, had the possibility of getting, standing outside the bubble, but what would life be like if it were completely unprotected? So remember that the reason I started talking was to protect myself. And so there's an enormous amount of security that's been established within this sense of thinking. And it has been used, as I have mentioned, for millennium. And I don't know what to do because it seems like fear is telling me to keep speaking, to keep it up, to keep the noise level going. And yet, when I reflect upon my misery, I see that the noise level is creating that tension, creating that resistance. And so I'm caught between two worlds. And I don't know which way to go. But my heart does. Because I'm not turning the question over to my mind as another abstract idea. If I did that, it would try to talk its way out of thinking. And even to the very naive person, talking your way out of thinking doesn't make much sense. But believe me, in the emotional intelligence of our bodies, it makes a lot of sense. So I have to want this, I have to want this sufficiently to be able to experience the fear that protects my security. And it's very helpful to be in groups with Sangha when you come to a point of that kind of crisis. Because you may hear in your little small group meetings somebody's willingness to extend themselves into that fear, that threshold of fear. And they seem to have come back alive. And we may have ventured into that. And although it can be rather difficult at some time, there develops an increasing resolution of the heart that says to oneself, I don't care, I'm not st I don't care whether I will be blown apart. Fear is always the worst case scenario. So I'll be crazy. I don't know what'll happen. But whatever it says is happening, 
isn't worth it. Whatever the pain, the, the pain of remaining where I am is increasingly worth the risk of testing the fear. So, the cells in my body that know stillness, your mind doesn't know stillness, but your body does. And we will be talking extensively about that when we get to the foundation of body in the Satipatthana Sutta. But for now, let me skip about six lectures and just say that the cells of your body, the cells of your body, the base level of our being, not the mind, the mind can't see beyond its bubble, but the heart and the accompanying body structure knows stillness. It's never left stillness. It never bought into the security arrangement. It never programmed itself genetically to ever leave the quiet that was always with it from day one. And as we begin to trust the fabric of our body, we test the theory of the mind with its torturous consequence. And we simply drop to a level of stillness that is held by the cells of the body. Not because we can't find it up here. We keep looking for it in the brain's waves activity. We keep trying to find the solution in the brain's waves activity. And we realize that that just keeps generating more noise. And that we can't find it in the mind. We can't, it's, it's been, it's been the organ of choice for all of our safety, all of our decisions for millions of years. And now we have reached the end of that organ's potential. You see? Doesn't mean you don't still aren't, you lose the ability to abstract. You don't lose the ability to abstract. You lose the ability to abstract your life. Not to make things. You go back to the original intention of where the abstraction was supposed to work. It was never supposed to work on this level. And so, there is a release, which is, I love Ash Wednesday, Wednesday right? Because we're talking about you know, giving something up. So this is the ultimate giving up. You, you release the need to have to speak to yourself. That's, that's what you release. The need to, to hear your voice anymore. And it all gets very quiet. It doesn't mean that there are no more thoughts. It means that we have now entered a dimension that holds the thoughts but doesn't feed upon the thinking, doesn't direct itself from those thoughts. It simply knows that thoughts are arising. It doesn't direct its life from that arising. And therefore, the stillness, the quiet, the awareness becomes the new refuge of choice. Becomes the new... It becomes the new, well, it, it comes to, it comes to, you st you're out of the bubble. The bubble breaks. The, and all of this trance, it's right, the closest, which is like such a poor example. I, I just can't, but anyway, I, I can't think of any other example. It's like, driving 500 miles with the radio blasting. And then you suddenly realize you can turn off the radio. You turn off the radio and there's this moment immediately when the radio stops, you go, God. And the recognition of this quiet that you could have had all along. 
but you just kept riding with the radio. Now that's the poorest example you could possibly have for the truth and profound impact of this stillness. So I ask you now to bring it forth. And so are you tr asking yourself, how do I do that? Which will stimulate new language, a new alternative reality, and a new possibilities. Because you can't ask, how can I do that? Because you'll right, be right back up promoting your abstract thought. You see, this is aligning. Remember, the point of this talk is not stillness, noise to stillness. That's it's aligning the principles with the application. So the application, the principle is from noise to stillness, and stillness is where we're headed. And therefore, all along the way, I have to become more and more conscious of the noise I'm bringing and the abstracting I'm doing. And at some point, this organ cannot move any longer. And there's a complete shutting down and a complete giving up on that organ. And then we walk out of the bubble, out of the trance that has held us captive since time immemorial. And we come into an enormous, abiding of stillness. And it's earth-shattering. And it's completely safe, real safety. Because it's all clear. It's not confused. It's not just showing me my reflective thoughts back to myself, my projections of the world back to me. It's pristine. And it comes from the stopping. It comes from aligning how we're working the path with what our intention is for the path. And I wish that for everyone. Can we sit for a minute or two? So the way I'm teaching, as you sit, please continue. I just want to talk for a moment. I'm going out there as far as I can go, as far as there is to go because I don't want to throw a stone 20 feet in front of you and have you make that to be your goal. Let that be set as your, the complete fruit of your practice. Self-love or being kind or some minor adjustment. You're welcome to do that. But keep the outermost continuum, the outermost, the absolute outermost expression of Dharma always in mind when you're doing any of this self-modification. Or you'll get lost within the labyrinth, the maze of self, and it will never let you out. It will always tell you, well, that's pretty good, but you have more to do. Look at this part of you, and look at that part of you. And look what he's doing over there compared to what you're doing. Can't you be as good as he is? It will never let you alone. It will never allow you to be quiet. So if you're going to go that way, you're welcome to. But realize that there will be perpetual frustration in whatever goal you set that is limited. By definition. 
And so I can't throw that rock 20 feet out for you. Because the self loves that. It says, great, I've got a goal, I've got an object, I can do something, I can modify. And off we would go. And then we would gather around that pool and we would feel a little better. And then we would start scratching our head and saying, yeah, but there's more to do. When you step out of noise, there's no more to do. When you step out of noise, you have ended the perpetual idea that my sense of worth and contentment is in the future. You've ended it. And that's what we step out of. Okay. <laughs> you can open your eyes now. <laughs> Rise up. <laughs> so, any questions or comments? Uh, I'd be happy to. Yes, sir. Can arise. Yes. You would think so. But remember that the reason we started abstracting was to protect ourselves. And so when you stop abstracting, the reason you started abstracting comes into view. And it feels like you're going somewhere that's unknown, like we must have felt when we ventured down from the trees out into the plains. Like, I don't know what, I'm, I've got to do something here. I've got to take something with me. This is fearful. And when we stop abstracting, because we don't realize how complete this bubble has formed around us, how totally encompassing our lives have been in terms of thought, how the storyline of our life has driven every, virtually everything we do our meaning, our purpose, our intention, our sense of self-image is all from our ruminations. And when we pose the possibility of ending that, wait a minute now, do I want to do that? But it's more than just a hesitation. It's a cellular caution. I think it came from the days when we started speaking. You know, it's like... It was our only possibility of survival. And to end the speaking, that fear re-arises. Have you ever noticed that whatever you thought you were going to leave behind in your meditation, your meditation brings back to you? When you as you get quieter, those old fears start returning. Those ones that you thought you had left or had surmounted or had bypassed. When you come back into the body, your body image waits for you. All the opinions and aversion we have to our body parts, that's what waits for us when we return. So too, when we start walking through the need to speak, I think cellular, almost in our cells, genetically, is the disposition of the fear that led us to speak in the beginning. It returns. That, but all fear is, is loud speak. It's noise. It's, it's, no, it's the greatest decibel of noise. Right? So if we have oriented our way into learning how to work with our noise, then when that moment comes, if it does come, and for some people it doesn't come, people just slide right on through. But for some people, many people, it does come. And when that fear starts arising, you know how to work with noise, because you've been working with it now since you started your meditation. And this noise is louder, seems more adamant, but it's still noise, and therefore can be worked with in exactly the same way. And what's the way? You don't do anything with it. You let it alone. You let it be what it is. Because true stillness is allowing life to be what it is. 
and not adding any alternative to what is. And so when we allow even fear to be what it is, it no longer has the grip or the traction to make us believe that the conversation it's imposing is true. And you go right through, like that. Doesn't it make sense? A little? Other comments or questions? Yes. Yes. Right. 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 So she's saying that in her meditation, sometimes her mind just goes endlessly and she just ventures out into all thoughts and then she wakes up to the fact and says, this is crazy because the real safety is being present here, not thinking, but it seems so automatic for me to think my way into what I think is a safer area than the immediate moment. So that, what you're working with that's very important there is you're, still, you're working on that continuum. You're seeing that the present moment, there is no more safety than, than being present. That's the ultimate safety. And that the abstracting doesn't really provide you safety. So you're already working against the momentum of noise in your practice by just that recognition, recognizing that when you're present, there's less noise, right? Or at least less um, identification with the noise because the present doesn't hold any noise. That's why it's authentic. The present moment doesn't hold noise as a intrinsic part of itself. Noise passes through the present, but it itself is not disposed to noise. It's disposed to stillness that holds the noise that passes through it, you see? And so, most of us, as we journey back into ourselves, start journeying back into the present moment. And the present moment is quieter than where we have normally spent our time. We find ourselves daydreaming less. We find ourselves ruminating less. We find ourselves less philosophical. Less willing to have endless philosophical, pointless, right? That go nowhere. And you just find this call in yourself an alignment toward this just a simplicity simplicity is stillness right just i don't want you know i just don't need the radio i just don't need all of that that seems so appealing at one point but seems so burdensome now it feels like a bur- it feels like oppression and some of the things that we engaged our life within like excitement i used to think excitement was the one of the but now it's like this, it doesn't feel good to be excited. It's not that, you know, it's not wrong. It just, it's, it's too abrasive. It doesn't, I don't seek excitement because it's, it's, it feels abrasive to, be, to have that state of mind. But before it was like the epitome of what one could acclaim for oneself, to be excited, right? And so all these things happen very naturally. And in their own course, you start feeling a very natural alignment with a a different quality. And stillness holds that quality. And you also begin to feel the dimension of what presence really feels like. As you get quieter, you, the sense of I, gets smaller. The sense of presence, P, gets larger. P is inverse to I. Small I, big P. Small P, big I. So as, I, as I'm, you know, if I could, you know, like I'm the meditator, look at me, I'll look up. Well, you're just a big I, but I guarantee you, you're nowhere close to being quiet, right? So you begin, to, it just begins to slip away. All that extra stuff, egoic stuff, is just noise. It begins to slip away. You see, so we just marched ourselves very systematically, very with. Give yourself endless 
endless opportunity for this. I, I, I was going to say endless time, but that's the wrong word. Let, don't hold yourself to standards of improvement. How's my meditation doing? How quiet am I? If you do that, you're getting noisier. You're not getting quieter. You see, you've got to line this thing up in body, mind, and spirit in every way if you want to go in the right direction. So you start cueing yourself in to where the sense of self starts proclaiming itself. And one of the ways it does is how well I've been doing and how good I am going and how much I've attained and how much more I've got to go. And it can do that very quick. Well, I'm getting quieter. How about that? Jeez, I'm getting quieter. Look at me, everybody. <laughs> or I'm wiser. Let me, let me ponder that. You see? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. All right. Oh. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.